At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 432nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is cultivating a community with a nonprofit urban farming project. We're talking with John Juan Angeles about placemaking on an urban farm. John is the director of Orchard Community Learning Center and incubator farm coordinator at Spaces of Opportunity. The Orchard also manages the Spaces Farmers Market. They are a nonprofit in South Phoenix founded in 2011. Their work centers on urban food systems, organic farming, STEAM programs for youth, and economic justice in the local economy. John is an educator by profession, serving 22 years as principal at Valley View Elementary School in the Roosevelt School District. The dual language K through eight schools specialized in project-based and multi-age learning opportunities, which included gardens and adventures in the creation of an edible landscape on campus. And this is where I first met John maybe 18 years ago when we donated some fruit trees to him. Welcome to the show today, John. Are you ready to rock? Ready to rock, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, in terms of the path evolving from the school, we were in a K-8 school and, and doing a lot of the work of what things I call things that matter. Then this opportunity, we were taking students to the seven acre property on the corner from the school. This opportunity came up to be able to manage that property as an urban farm and connect youth. So I began to think about how to how to develop some systems that would take some of the the voice of and the work that we were doing within the school not to be replicated but as a, a reference into a broader context and I like to say building a little Trojan horse back into other schools inviting folks to be considering what's real, what matters and getting kids doing real things. And you're pretty embedded in the community. This is a South Phoenix community, which is fairly impoverished. Tell me about it. South Phoenix, of course, has a long history, starting with the indigenous peoples long before a white man showed up. And we're working in the zone where the original Hohokam canals were. And over the last century, our area of Phoenix was largely agricultural and, and began to be a citrus and a Japanese flower gardens and cotton. And I think earlier in the century, 
place where cattle crossed the river. But then it became a place that was kind of redlined by the society at large and redlining in the sense that economic development was discouraged and people, a lot of people of oppressed nationalities in South Phoenix and and that's reverberated in terms of the economies. But I've lived here since 1978 and absolutely love it. It's, it's 138,000 people now, but it feels a lot like the small town of a thousand people that I grew up in. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of cool farming gardening projects going on down there and you're involved with several of them. Tell me about the place where you live. It's interesting because it's a, it's a things is incredibly diverse uh, economically, uh, ethnically, and in terms of the activities that are happening in it. So there's new development like everywhere else, and there's you know urban farms, and, and there's not too much uh, citrus orchards left anymore, but there's vacant land, open spaces, South Mountain, and a number of organizations, about 10 organizations in South Phoenix that work with the environment, sustainability, and, and the life forms, you know, everywhere from the Environmental Center to Audubon Society to Literary Wildlife to uh, the Girl Scout camp and I mean just amazing stuff happening here for for youth and outdoor worlds. Yeah, which is really awesome because I've lived in Phoenix for 52 years now. I've always known South Phoenix to be a little bit impoverished, probably a lot bit impoverished, but when I go down there these days there's this this thriving vibe especially around food that's really cool. And I I suspect you had a little bit to do with that. I probably wouldn't say that. I dream of having had something to do with it and more specifically a dream of the people here having the uh, the invitation, the opportunities to do a lot with it because, you know, we're the space of opportunity, uh, farmer's market, uh, orchard manages, uh, is the only farmer's market in South Phoenix. Yeah. There's 138,000 people. So it's it's still impoverished in the sense of not just food accessibility, but the conversations around food and wellness. You go into the supermarkets in South Phoenix now, you're going to struggle to find the organic section if there is one. So it's, it's bringing that voice of wellness in many levels and with the community. Yeah. So you mentioned, we mentioned several times spaces of opportunity. So I'm driving down a road called Vineyard and I pull up to this 19 acre parcel. Yep. And what am I looking at? This is an interesting property now run by a coalition of uh, four organizations and the Roosevelt School District who owns the property. And it is vacant land for 35 years. The district bought it like at least 35 years ago, and uh, it was adjacent to an established neighborhood, but basically farmland. And then the neighborhood happened. So now this 19-acre property is completely surrounded in a community. So it's unique in Phoenix in terms of vacant land in that it's not just vacant land out there, it's vacant land in the middle of a completely developed housing community with a school on three corners of the property. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's unique in the sense of, of where it is and what it is in terms of access to engaging the community and the schools and the students and youth with the work. Excellent. And what are you doing with the property? So we'll get to the farmer's market in a minute, but tell me about the incubator part. The property is, like you said, 19 acres, and we think of it as placemaking, and, and that's trying to uh, try to define that a little bit. It's, a, it's placemaking in the sense of developing functions within that that are place that people in the community have a sense uh, an authentic sense of ownership because there are 
running the thing. So it's got elements that I can describe. Um, I don't know if that describes placemaking in and of itself, but it's got community gardens in kind of a traditional community garden sense that Tiger Mountain manages. And there's about 155 by 50 foot plots now, and about half of them are are rented, and the rent means five dollars a month uh, for a five by 50 foot bed, and and then we set the beds up and and the project waters them. It includes an incubator farm, which the orchard's managing, which is on nine of the acres, and that brings in under-resourced uh, by USDA definitions uh, and beginning farmers that have some farming background and don't have property or the means to to farm and survive economically. And they start on a quarter acre and can move up to two, three acres as they produce. Uh-huh. And again, we set up the, and irrigate the uh, property and they go to work growing and, and then are able to invited to sell back through the uh, farmer's market. I call it a co-op. It's not formally that yet, and that uh, we call our harvest. Also on the property is a couple more things. Is uh, we're working to understand and and incorporate the, what I refer to as the plants uh, that are native to the desert and to the peoples of the desert, so that it's not just a, a European vegetable garden. And also bring in artisans, and so it's a place for the arts. We've got a 600-foot-long mural that was done by a local artist that runs basically tells the agricultural history of South Phoenix beginning with the Hohokam up to the present. So, yeah, it's a gathering place. And the farmer's market is also there. We're about to build next month, break ground on 8,000-square-foot shade canopy that will become the uh, farmer's market. Now, so you have farmers on site there. Do you have any facilities for them to harvest and store yet? That's part of what the project's doing. So farmers market our harvest. We we accept produce at harvest from the growers. And so then we weigh it and tag it to their, their work and then uh, process it, wash it, bunch it, cool it, take it to markets, sell it. And then they get 60% of the sales back. So it's we're we're able to do, and of course they can take their product to their own markets and uh, retail outlets also. But for the small grower, all those steps of after harvest, of, of washing, transporting, cooling, bunching, putting human resource to the markets, is a hellacious amount of work. Oh yeah, especially in the desert, just the cooling part. So we've built a couple of uh, Coolbot technology cooling facilities, and we're about to build a larger one on site. So this entire process will be contained on the farm, from the seed to the uh, farmer's market, and back out the door to the table. And then probably composting too. Oh, we're, yeah, we're doing food-to-food composting. We're working at the school I'm speaking from, last elementary school, with the cafeteria here, and we just started this last week. So we're pooling the, the food-diverted waste, which on the drawdown study is, I think, is number three in the impact yep. of global warming. So we're not only doing it, but teaching the kids the significance of that. So that food's going out to our composting operation. We just take the diverted food waste, mix in some chips and water, stir, cook, and back to the garden. Nice. That's what I like to call the regenerative composting process, where we're taking in food waste, and whether it's from our space, you know, so we're harvesting food, and then we've got food waste and making it into compost, and then it makes it into soil, and we harvest more food, and we make more compost, and we're doing all that on site here. It sounds like you are too. Yeah, and it's I mean, just a kind of overwhelmed and excited about the circular nature of this stuff. So then food food composting, we're able to do 
mixing, combining that with cover crops and crop rotation to be the nurturer of the soil so that we're not pulling in, let's say, animal manure from a facility that has been abusing animals and kind of contradicting our underlying message just by doing that. So you actually mentioned Tiger Mountain Foundation. Uh, We've actually had Darren Chapman on the show in episode 108 that was back on July 23rd, 2016. So if you're interested in finding out more about Tiger Mountain Foundation, check out that podcast because the work he's doing is amazing. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And we're really strong partners in this project. They do, they manage the community gardens, as I mentioned. They do a lot of workforce development in terms of uh, individuals in the community that uh, are struggling to get a a fair, just paid project and get into the workforce if they haven't been in it. And they're also doing the work outside of spaces of opportunity and agri-landscaping and and things of that nature. But they're a really strong voice in this um, project that includes us and them and unlimited potential and uh, the botanical garden. Nice. So one of the things that I did early on, back about the time we met uh, almost 20 years ago, was I used to harvest food, grow and harvest food here at the urban farm, and I would take it to a farmer's market. And one of the things that I learned back then was that 50%, maybe even less than 50%, but probably 50% of the process of growing and marketing food was the actual growing. The other 50% was the marketing. And that takes a lot of effort. And one of the barriers that I ran up against almost 18 years ago was, how do I get this stuff to the market? Can you tell our listeners how easy it is to actually participate in a farmer's market so that maybe take down some of that wall? I think there the walls are really in terms of uh, the structures that don't exist in a lot of places. But at the same time, uh, what we're trying to do is make that easy. As I mentioned, the process, the to accept from the growers so so that we can operate as a cooperative. It's like, and this is really small right now, Greg. I mean, we're we're hoping for much larger because mm-hmm. we're pretty new. But the concept of building the systems of, to make it work, which is being able to receive that produce, whether it's a backyard grower or a farmer on, on the property or a community gardener, and give it a venue, a place where they can bring it. If you've got uh, charred and it's 105 degrees and you don't put it in a cooler, you're in trouble. So it's, it's having that equipment and the, and the systems to handle it that really matters. Yeah. Well, and when you're approaching a farmer's market, an existing one, if you have extra stuff, sometimes there's a community booth at the markets and the rest of the time it, it's pretty simple to get a table at a farmer's market, is it not? It is. You know, it's a pretty nominal fee to be there. One of the places that we sell through the community exchange at the Phoenix Public Market. And that way we can we take it to them and they do the table management so we don't have to staff it. That's probably the biggest, that and equipment of tables and tents and stuff is probably the biggest issue at a farmer's market. But to get in is, is real easy. You read their handbook, you find out what their guidelines are. Usually they expect egg products to be locally grown and oftentimes organic or organically grown and then bingo you're in nice in your bio it says steam and that's spelled s-t-e-a cubed m can you tell us what that is because that's a term i haven't seen yet well, STEAM itself comes with the next sort of iteration of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Then a lot of people started adding the A for art, so science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. RA cubed represents agriculture, arts, and activism because we believe that uh, 
if we're forming a nonprofit, there's probably an issue in society that needs to be addressed. And the activism piece is, for us is really important in terms of educating uh, youth about the underlying issues that, that are in front of them. I love it. I was hoping that one of those A cubes was going to be agriculture. It certainly is. Kind of hard to miss with what we're doing. <laughs> right. Especially since we have all have to eat three times a day. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, I'm going to say a little bit about a failure, and that I've overcome it would probably be an overstatement. <laughs> but it's it's in the work of, let's say, working in, for, with community of being able to open a space in which critical consciousness thrives. In other words, questioning what's what's going on here, why is it going on, getting down to root causes of uh, systems dysfunction, or in particular, why are some people poor and some people not poor? Mm. Or why are some people obese and other people not obese? Or why are some people literate and other people not literate? So understanding that, and I, in the schoolwork, we had a lot of successes, uh, but I feel like that real baseline revolutionizing the community conversation where teachers, students, community members, families really got into dialogue about that, I feel like I failed I'm, in terms of my work. I mean, uh-huh. my responsibility, but I was principal and I felt like I needed to be the person responsible for opening that space. So that's that's kind of a life frustration for me, <laughs> is, and particularly in the United States and, mm-hmm. and the cultures that we live in, is, is how to open that space in a way where people who have been in our systems, particularly school systems, have essentially been told not to question and open a space where questioning is of value. You know, I was just talking with Heidi, my sweetheart, the other day uh, about something in this arena. And, you know, I love my life. I love the difference I've made and I wouldn't go back for anything. But it occurred to me the other day that if I could go back, what I really would wish for is that I made a bigger difference with what I had back then and what I knew because you know, in hindsight, retrospect, I could go back and make a bigger difference. And it sounds to me that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, I want to say exactly. And I, I think if in terms of behavior change, if I were rewinding the clock, I, would, I think I took a fair amount of risk in terms of some of the things that we did. But I think I would take more and admittedly probably not have survived that risk in terms of being able to continue that particular work. But at least I would have been more true to to not succumbing to the forces that were putting us in line. Yeah, that's an excellent way of putting it. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think part of it is uh, being true to myself, to my daughters, to my spouse, to my friends. But in the school context, where I pull a lot of schema into what I'm doing now, one of them being I'm always a learner. If I'm not a learner, I'm not a teacher. We had 20 different electives at the school for fourth or eighth grade. We were literature-based. We had dual language, multi-age. And I think that the dual language was after it became illegal in Arizona to to honor language. And so I, I think we were successful in a lot of those things. And so it's tied into the failure because things were happening but I'm frustrated about the depth of it. And the other success is staying a learner. I mean, I can guarantee you that 
whatever I'm doing today, I probably learned yesterday, particularly in the world of farming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love what you said. If I'm not a learner, I'm not a teacher. And in reflecting back on my life, I'm always taking a class. I'm always curious about learning something. So I like to call myself a lifelong learner, and it sounds like you do too. Oh, yeah. And I mean, one of my specific things right now is, is and I'll never get this down, but it's understanding the world of soil. I mean, that oh, my gosh. And the teaspoon of soil, it's like, oh, my goodness, it blows me away. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, and there's so much to soil. So yeah, I used to think it was simple because I was, <laughs> I think, overwhelmed. I just put the seed in, it'll be fine. But it's so much more than that. Yeah. So, well, given you brought it up, can we touch on what your definition of healthy soil is and how you might go about creating healthy soil? I think the first step would be to look at how this planet has taken care of its soil before humans got involved. And particularly, you know, what's happened in the last 10,000 years with modern agriculture and then kind of reflecting back to what to do with that. So, I mean, that kind of tells the story why we're doing food-to-food composting, why we're working toward no-till, why we're learning to, to build canopies of growth, particularly in a desert context, so that different forms of life can be growing, feeding us, and very diverse. So I think diversity, understanding the biology of the soil a little bit in terms of the, uh, the, the bacteria and the fungal populations in particular, and just letting nature do what it would do if we weren't messing with it. You know, that's always a good fix, isn't it? Pretty couple million years of plus about 500 million more of practice. So I think yeah. we could look at it. Yeah. Well, I always like, whenever I get an opportunity and even on my podcast, I, I'd like to say that there's the simple definition for me, healthy soil is there's five components to it. The dirt that's there, that's the broken down rock. And it's usually highly compacted. So if you try and just grow in that, good luck. So dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. That's my general definition. And the life in the soil is probably the most important piece. And I think, especially here in the desert, I think the way to get there is add lots and lots of organic matter. Yeah, just adding that brings, well, we're in the desert again. And so there's, and there's places in the desert where there are kind, all kinds of microclimate. And so that's like creating that, allowing, you were saying before, the, before we went on about cooling the soil just by putting the right kind of growing stuff in it and the right stuff on top of it so so that desert heat isn't killing everything there. Yeah, one of the things that I discovered this past year, now I've been growing food here in the valley for 45 years and I don't know why this didn't occur for me, but in August in the that's the middle of summer for us here in the northern hemisphere, uh, in my front yard at at ground level it was 140 degrees. And underneath the sweet potatoes, which is a cover is my cover crop in my front yard, it was eighty nine degrees, and that's enough to have your garden thrive in the summertime or have it die. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. And and it's sweet potatoes, that's one of my learning curves. I didn't know they grew like they grew here. We're having really good luck with sweet potatoes. Oh yeah. They they well, they've been growing wild in my front yard for at least a decade. Yep, and they just keep on feeding you. Exactly. And you can't get them all out. They're not necessarily invasive. I guess if we wanted to get them all out, we could, but they're not invasives, and they just keep coming back year after year. Plus, one of those things is purslane, which I didn't even know the English word till long after I knew the word in Spanish, verde and it just grows. And now it is at our farmer's markets. It's far outselling lettuce. What product was that? Purslane. 
Cold purslane, yes. An extremely healthy plant. That most of the world treats it, most of the world that I'm familiar with treats as a weed, and it's right there. And we don't have to do anything but harvest and get it to the market. Yeah, exactly. So what drives you? The possible. I think that in the, for me, the possible is usually, in my simple mind, I think of it as real simple, yet it's resisted with sophistication, sort of the status quo character that shows up. But I think what drives me is just seeing things, gosh, this could be, and it could be real simple. Let's do it. Yeah. Just do it. Yep. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Greg, there's me, uh, of course, for, with everybody, a long list, but I'm going to pick on Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. And I think it's this ties back into the what I talked about in terms of failure, is is the failure to understand the degree to which the systemic issues of oppression really create the need for us to do the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So again, if we start a nonprofit, there's a reason for it. We didn't start it because everything's wonderful. And then what the, what Ferry talks about is, I couldn't even say what he talks about, but ultimately how to be successful in terms of touching on the critical consciousness, asking the, inviting people to be asking the critical questions so that success isn't just cosmetic or even looking great, but addresses the, the fundamental change of the oppressive forces that, that have that need showing up in the first place of why you would start the nonprofit. Beautiful. And the name of the book again? Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's an old book, uh, been around for probably three or four decades now by Paulo Freire. And he wrote a lot of stuff. He was primary work was in Brazil, working with uh, a very impoverished and oppressed peoples, and uh, was able to create environments educationally where people began to ask and understand the critical questions that they had within. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Mm, I think I would say that if you want to be a leader or teach leadership, grab a shovel. And there you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, John. Thank you, Greg. It's been fun. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Phone number, which works with my text, uh, 602-509-6042, or info at orchardlearningcenter.org. Beautiful. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash spaces of opportunity. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.